0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: So, I, I, so let's get to your question then, because okay. I did uh, uh, ask you about that, which is, can you discuss your journey from being a monetary theorist, <laughs> a monetary historian, and macroeconomist? You wrote two really good books. <laughs> And then the next thing you know, you're writing a book on Hayek and the family. At some level, it seems like a disjoint, but what is it that unites that experience? How did your teaching impact that experience? Um, and, you know,
2: yeah.
1: yeah. What do you, what do you, you know? Well,
2: that's the answer. The answer is, is, is the role of my teaching uh, affected that so let's maybe we'll we'll back up because because I think that I mean I, what what you I mean the first book was the dissertation revision okay let's we're gonna just put it's it's good and I read it now and I'm I'm still proud of it I would have done some things differently but okay put it aside uh because the other two matter more and and of course the, the the new little book from Cato too but the two other books matter more um the the macro book uh grew out of my teaching right I mean I was teaching. Uh, uh, money and banking for many years at St. Lawrence. And uh, I designed the course, sort of, right, how would I present this? And and as I taught the course through the years, you know, you you have to think about how you're going to convey those ideas to students and what, you know, what pieces and what's on the reading list and all these sorts of things. And, and uh, I taught some intermediate macro in there too. Uh, and and sort of in conversation with students, you begin to, you begin to see where the problems are and you begin to see connections and you begin to come up with a story in your head about how these all fit together. And so I very much, and I think imitating Buchanan, right. The things I was doing in that class were testing out, test driving the ideas that were in the book. And there were times when students asked questions. I mean, there's a whole little thing in the chapter on deflation about, about, uh, you know, in, we talk about inflation and forced savings, right? Is there forced investment during deflation? Well, yeah, there is. Inventories build up. And that whole argument came out of student asked me in class one time. I said, well, wait a second. If, if they're parallel the way you're talking about, is there such a thing as forced investment and deflation? I'm standing in front of the class going, well, yeah. And I'm sort of thinking it through on my feet. And so I think that book came out of my teaching in a in, a, in an important way. I mean, you know, obviously the the sort of depth and sophistication of the ideas in the book were not things I was gonna do in an undergraduate money and banking class. But but having to convey the basics of it in a classroom to 20 year olds, right? You know, that's how you build your story. So it really did come from that. And at the time, right, I mean I was writing on those issues in a whole in a whole bunch of ways.
1: Um Can I ask you a follow-up question on yeah. that because you know the story you told about the picture where you were a basically probably a junior in college and you're on a family yep, trip Yeah, yeah, uh a competition entrepreneurship. So you'd probably had intermediate and micro already, but you probably didn't have an advanced elective. And it's like right in that. Right. Sweet yeah,
2: spot. it's right. Yep.
1: Your, your, your macro book, which by the way, I think is, is just wonderful. So, and you have a, a very sophisticated article that's in the Journal of History of Economic Thought and Methodology, which lays out a lot of the theoretical ideas on that, which would, just what you were saying, probably beyond the grasp of um, you know most undergraduates at some level. You'd have to be a graduate student, I think, to be into that. Yeah. But your book is 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 not like Garrison's in the sense that it's a pure pedagogical exercise. Right. But yet it also does fit right after someone would have had intermediate macro that's... and money and banking, but before they go get advanced macro.
2: In that's yeah. That was, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's the, that was my intent. My intent was that students who've had intermediate macro and money and banking ought to be able to read this book profitably. They might not get it all, but they ought to be able to read it and understand it and and find, you know, in, in that spot, like you say, before the advanced macro or before grad school, right? I think, I think my sense is a lot of the Mercatus PhD students end up reading it sort of in their first year if they haven't read it already. Sure. something happens that leads them to read it. Right. And that's another great sweet spot for it. I can, you know, if I was taking a fairly standard macro one and macro two in grad school and reading me and Garrison alongside it, right. That's what you'd want to do. do
1: But you're hearing it first. You did for macroeconomics, what Kirzner did for microeconomics. Wow. All right.
2: All right. Well, you know, uh, thank you. Thank you. First of all. And secondly, you know what Kirzner said, Right kirzner said uh, that my book and rogers were the two most important books written in austrian economics since the 1970s he said that in about 2000 shortly after they were published right and and so okay so now i get independent verification of that from uh thank you that's that's a very high compliment and and it's i didn't i didn't set out to that sort of goal specifically but because probably i thought even I thought that might have been <laughs> reaching a little too far. Uh, uh, no,
1: it fits that. It fits that mold, and it. Yeah. And it's a No,
2: that's right. And
1: also, I mean, as you know, again, it fits the idea that there's a unified economics. Yeah. There is no micro and macro. There's, that's no right. Micro applied to macro questions. Yeah. And so the coordination theme is throughout. So we don't. But I mean, I. I, I it, you, you did great with that. So yeah. now, to the family, how yeah. the hell do you go from, <laughs> you know, macroeconomics and monetary history right. to, like, discussing the family?
2: So I think there's, there's two things happening there. The most important thing is, again, it was teaching. So I'll make the long story short. I taught for a long time in the first-year program at St. Lawrence, eventually became associate dean, uh, and, and the first round I taught with a psychologist, colleague and some other people. And we did nothing that was really related to my interest, although we did read Darwin every year. And, and teaching Darwin was an interesting thing and helpful. Um, but when I went back into the program after I got tenure in 1996, uh, I didn't have a team Didn't team to work with. I said, "I oh, look, I want to come back and teach, but I don't have anybody to work with. And the associate dean at the time paired me with two uh, junior colleagues from other departments, sociologists and psychologists, both women, and it turned out that we started talking, and they both had an interest in doing stuff, uh, research on the family. Okay, so I'm a tenured person working with these two young, younger colleagues, junior colleagues, and I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? I'm not going to force my research agenda on them. Let's teach something that works for them as part of their research that they can easily get into and perhaps would be you know, fertile for their research. So they all right, let's figure out what we can do in the family. And I'm back in my mind going, all right. Gary Becker, right? I can, I can, you know, I can do this, right? You don't have to be, you know, have to be a genius to teach freshmen about sort of thing about the economics of family. Well, what, you know, I worked with those folks for a couple years and then in 1998, whatever it was, uh, I started teaching with different psychologists, my friend, Kathy Crosby, who uh, was beginning of a teaching and intellectual partnership and deep friendship that continues to this day. And one of the first things Kathy said to me when she kind of came in and we were thinking about the course, was it was two semesters. And she said, the second semester, we focused more on policy. And she looked at me and says, you know what we should read? And I'm like, what? She said, we should read John Stuart Mill on Liberty as a way to get them to think about the relationship between the individual and the state. I just met this person, right? I'm like, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can do that. And and so and she also, by the way, Kathy has a background in the law and, and sort of new family law and parental rights stuff. And so the course we put together was just great. And by that time, I'd done a couple of years. And so I knew some things and I knew, kind of knew what I wanted to do. And as you're putting this together and you're working with people from other disciplines and you're trying to communicate this to 18-year-olds, I'm sitting, even like when Kathy or the other folks were talking, I'm sitting in the back going, how, how would Hayek talk? I mean, that was really in my head back in my head was how would Hayek or how would Hayekians talk about this? We don't, no one talks about the family as an institution. I mean, even at Hayek, you could go through all the pages of Hayek, even his note cards and all that stuff. And count on two hands, maybe, maybe one, the times he talks about. It. And it's always a kind of off the cuff. Oh, they're important. Families are important. All right, so obviously there's a market niche here, right? I, can, I have an entrepreneurial opportunity, uh, but I had to have a story. And I think the key was the key to that whole book, frankly, is is the two sorts of worlds at once idea, right? How, how do families bridge the mic, the, that micro order and the macro order of the great society? Uh, and so I just became intellectually entranced with trying to sort that stuff out. So that's the big piece of it. The smaller piece of it is well, maybe two smaller pieces. One smaller piece is I was also at that time starting to do this stuff on the economic history stuff on on standard of living and and all this, you know, how how much life has improved and 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 sort of again, Dreen Simon's part of that but but the work that Don Boudreau was doing and Mark Perry at, at, at AI, and so all these people were, and oh, and the Cox and all book was tremendously important for me in in that, you know, a myth of rich and poor. So life, life's great, right? And so how do we how do we sort of mix in that? You know, and as as you know, right, it goes back a long way. But but I'm I'm the libertarian feminist from. From way back when, uh, and so there was that piece of it too, which was uh, and and go back to our earlier conversation. This was a left libertarian project, also. How do we how do we talk about families and gender in ways that that uh, are are, uh, are are a voice of the left, but but a different one? So all those things I think came together. Plus, frankly, I was a, you know I was a parent of at the time. Uh, young children and then then teenagers, and so thinking through my own parenting experiences were were important yeah, that's a, too. That's yeah. An important
1: and thing is raising kids with all. of it. Well, be- that's
2: right, and so so how you know, uh, and I and I just I, I, and, and you fell you fall in love intellectually with something, and you go, all right, now I got to write it. Okay, I have these ideas. I've been thinking about it. It's fascinating. No one's done this before. I, I, I got to write it, and I'm 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 I got to say I'm really really proud of that book the here's what I'll say about the two books the macro book will be read in a hundred years people will still be reading the macro book I they, they they will uh I don't know if they'll still be reading the family book I hope so uh but I but that book the, the family book was just like fun and new and different and I think part of the challenge for us who are in this academic thing for the long haul is how do we keep ourselves in tranced in that way how do we keep ourselves in invested and curious and exploring new things I know that that you have got a later question about what makes me curious these days and I have a cute answer for you when we get to that Uh, but but I think that's the key what what and your question suggests it which is you always have to reinvent yourself right you have to reinvent yourself in one way or another and that was a moment of reinvention the interesting and ironic thing about it is that I started writing that book in 2000, really the actual writing of it. In 2007, I was 10 weeks at Bowling Green after I finished as associate dean. I, I started the writing. Well, what happens? The financial crisis breaks and and blogging is happening. And that's about the time I joined, started blogging, now coordination problem, and well before Bleeding Heart Libertarians, but I'm th- and Routledge reissues the macro book in early 2009, and suddenly I'm thrust back into that stuff again yeah, yeah. As, as a public intellectual, right? And I'm having the time of my life, right, as a public – I'm on the judges' show, right? I'm, I'm, it's, it's great, and I wouldn't have traded that for anything, but – Two interesting consequences to that. One, it made me put the family book on hold. The family book should have been published five years before it was, but I had to put it on hold because I had to. Right? I mean, I was compelled to speak publicly about what was happening. I had to open my open letter to my friends in the left, right, fall two thousand eight. Right, all this stuff. The other interesting thing about that in my own career is, we were looking for a new dean at St. Lawrence at the time, and and the president would have loved to have had me as the dean and VPAA, right around this time but I sat in his office and I said, look, Dan, two things. One, I haven't had a sabbatical in 10, 12 years, whatever it was. It was a long time. So I said, and I said, secondly, you're, you're, you're not going to, you, you can't give me anything. That's going to take away from all the fun that I'm having. This is what I, this is what I do. This is what I love to do. And, and, and I will find other ways to, to serve St. Lawrence, you know, uh, but, but I now is not the time for me to do this. Uh, so that's an, there's a couple interesting what ifs there, right? About, about the future, but I'm, I can't, no regrets, right? That's so the family book ended up taking more time than I thought because, and, and the other interesting irony of the family book is I got the page proofs. This is true. I got the page proofs the day the Obersfeld same-sex marriage decision was decided when oh, that came out. I mean, right? Yeah. And that was, it was, well, it didn't, he, I mean what was cool is that, I was able to rewrite a couple things real quickly, right, to, to account for that. Because if it had been the timing had been different, I would have been stuck with a with a with some stuff that looked outdated. But I I will note by the way I called it correctly about what that decision would be and why. So I would. Uh, who uh, says uh, Austrians can't? Uh,
1: it's interesting the financial crisis impact and the role that that we played. You and I, you know, we wrote this little monograph yep. on that. Uh, um, but, you know, in both of us in our own way, we got drawn into having to make commentary about what was going on. People wanted to, in various ways, write articles, give talks, whatever. And one of the consequences for you is that you didn't become an aso- a dean, and that would have set your career in a different path. The issue for me was that um, I actually stopped coaching. And, you know, the year before, I got inducted into a local, you know, Hall of Fame here for my coaching career, and I had to stop coaching. And I, I only coached one other year after, two years after the financial crisis hit. And, uh, and then I had all kind. I did have, I've had a lot of offers to go back and every single time it was like, you know, not now, obviously, but yeah. in those first couple of years, yeah. and I was like at other schools and other places and everything, I was like, no, I can't do that. I, I'm focused too much on this. I can't do that. And it sort of changed, uh, you know, my trajectory about things as well. I mean, uh, if I would have kept coaching, there's no way I, we could have had the Hayek center or anything. Right. Like, but right. okay. Well, let me add,
2: let me add one more piece to this. That's relevant to Mercatus specifically it just struck me too that that 2005 is katrina yeah. and uh my work on the katrina project was another uh, in terms of my public intellectual life and and my sort of you know uh there's a whole group of people who who only know me as the strawberry Pop-Tarts guy, right? <laughs> that, yeah. You know, that, that my stuff on Walmart and Katrina got, got. I mean, I, and, and the double irony is I was supposed to be on Stossel, if you remember, to talk about this stuff. Why did I get bumped from Stossel? Because the show aired the day that the stock market tanked and Tossel, Stossel bumped me to talk about the financial crisis, yeah. irony of ironies, right? So, you know, so... That, the the Katrina stuff was really, was really important too.
1: That was a very uh, rewarding and important project. Yes,
2: yes. For all of us, I think we're about, yeah. 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 um, And a template, by the way. I don't, I don't know what, what you guys are going to do with the pandemic, but it's a template.
1: But again, you know, going back to the earlier point, if you think about it, look at the book that Virgil and, and yeah. uh, Emily and Nona put together. Again, that's a social history. That's, that's more- a Lavoie
2: book through and yeah. through.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, okay, let's, let's uh, uh, move on. I wanted to ask you about um, basically your relationship with Mercatus, um, but also... I have this this uh, description in here, and I'll try to be very brief because I've taken too much of your time. But
2: no, we I got uh, time. This, uh, is too the, much, this is so much fun.
1: <laughs> so when we when we we started our program at C, at Center for Study of Market Processes, there was a kind of a, a like you said a, a, a thing that Rich Fink wanted to get, and then Don and Jack. And others inherited it from that, and that was that there was a commitment to recruit and train graduate students to become what I call five-tool yeah. players. This is this is my uh, love affair with baseball—the idea of a five-tool player. But anyway, it was first and foremost, and we were taught this from day one that we had to communicate to our scientific peers, yep. not our friends in the Austrian world, but the scientific peers in the broader community. The expectation
2: uh, of having, a, having a, something at least forthcoming in a non-Austrian journal when you got out the door. A referee,
1: a referee journal yeah. and, and, and the ability to get tenure and all that kind of stuff yeah. like that. Uh, we were supposed to be effective and inspiring teachers in the classroom that had our own syllabuses and, and developed that. Uh, we were encouraged to be, try to learn how to be persuasive public intellectuals that could write op-eds, that could give public lectures, that kind of stuff. So written in spoken world. And we were supposed to be able to, if given a public policy issue, that of pressing desire, demand, excuse me, could be able to critically analyze it and whatnot. And then finally, because there was no extensive network, as you talked about, we were supposed to be the builders of a network that, would then benefit the generation behind us, this is the version of the play it forward kind of thing. That's right. And so you had to be a clever and creative academic entrepreneur, someone who would be willing to be a department chairman, be willing to be a DGS, uh, be willing to build a new center. And so first, you know, do you see yourself in that training? uh, And do you feel the same kind of way about the, the, um, you know, the the way we were taught and the expectation we were taught with. And, you know, how do you see that as, um, I mean, not everyone can be a five-tool five player and not all five, not all three-tool players or even two-tool players are bad, right. you know, to have on your team. That's right. Um, but uh, this goal of trying to create these five-tool players and especially – in the world that we're now about to face. So the world that you and I faced and the world we're now about to face because of the implications for higher ed caused by the pandemic. What's what what weight do you put on having the five tools as opposed to just one or two? Yeah, or
2: two? yeah I think I, I agree with you and, and and as you you know, as I read that list I was thinking five is the fifth one is interesting because, because also administrative, not just entrepreneurial ability to build a new center institution, but also to be a department chair, to be an associate Dean or Dean or whatever. Those tools are important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. Editor of journal. Yeah. Right. All these things. Yeah. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, I think it is important to try to cultivate people who, who have as many of those tools as you, as possible. Uh, I, you know, I, I think, I think one of the th- ways in which, if you look back at our, you know, successful younger colleagues, and us too, one of the ways we were able to get our feet in the door was because we were outstanding teachers, and and I think that we should never underestimate the importance of that, and, and I think there's interesting reasons why Austrians tend to be outstanding teachers, and and the reason is that we're used to communicating our ideas in ways, go back to my book, in ways that undergraduates can also understand and so we even our scientific ideas right are are are, this is the advantage of being a largely verbal community
1: you you used to put that in a in an empirical testable form if you were Tullison, you could have done you used to say that uh students of lavoy have won more teaching awards at variety of universities than other like mentees have you ever have you ever gone and done the imperialism? No, I
2: haven't, but it's interesting. It's, it would be interesting to do that now. Yeah, so I mean, uh, so, so that tool is really important and it's an important tool for overcoming what still is a kind of suspicious eye about Austrians and GMU and all that. If you're a really good teacher, that's how I got the job at St. Lawrence, right? It was clear I was a really good teacher, right? And, and you know, okay, we'll put up with the rest. And and it was also clear I was going to publish. So I think th- that's the most important. But, but you know... Uh, if you can do the public intellectual stuff uh, and learning how, to, and an important part about that is learning how to deal with media and being willing to, to do that kind of stuff. One of the most important things that, that I try to tell young folks is, look, don't shy away from a media opportunity because you don't think you're an expert. on that thing you don't have to be an expert all you got to have is econ 101 and just be able to communicate it right i'm doing this stuff now every year the 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 media people at ball state take these reports about consumer spending at the holidays at halloween and then the the christmas and hanukkah and then valentine's day national Retail federation says we're going to spend x billion dollars on on these holidays right he sends me the numbers i write up a little thing where i say yeah, here's why right here's why this year I said, well halloween's going to be different this year because of pandemic and electoral uncertainty and blah 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 he sends it out i wind up getting all these media hits from it right i got a I got a local tv interview on this stuff i'm no what am i an expert on? i'm not an expert in this stuff but i'm a good economist right you called so, your
1: dad and asked him how many ads he was
2: clipping right, right. <laughs> so right so you know don't don't shy away from this stuff and 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 get some training i mean i you know i i'm I had theater tra- I had theater experience and, and all this and so I was so I was comfortable in those ways. if you're not get get some training M- almost every university will do it for you if you know find a way to train you and get comfortable in front of a camera or on, or on You know i radio. forgot
1: about that you you do have theater training just like Munger does yeah. which is one of the reasons why you guys are so and, comfortable Right and also I like I'm a beer in headlights I'm like Right
2: <laughs> and the better you than better than better than the two of us is Aunt Davies Aunt Davies is deeply trained in in theater, right? And so, you know, ants one of the most effective communicators of 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 our ideas that out there in many ways precisely because he, he has that kind of comfort and training in front of a camera on a stage. Great. So, so yeah, I think I think, you know, just getting comfortable with it and, and, you know, not being afraid to make a mistake, Uh, but, but universities value that stuff immensely. I mean, my, my five minutes on CNN a few years ago was, was worth a half a million dollars to my university. Think of it that way, right? What would they have to pay to get five minutes of advertising on CNN? That's, that's the value you deliver when you do that. So, so that stuff's really important. And, and, you know, if you have the patience and the skill to be an administrator, you, you you should do that. Um, You know, for me now, building a set I got I got some money I got a center I got to figure out what to do with it which is complicated by the pandemic and my own my own health situation but you know all right let's let's move let's move forward with that so uh, I also think that that's part of never being bored with my job I don't uh, you know I, I I I'm gonna say this my 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 department current department chair doesn't want to hear me say this but I'm, but I'm like look I'm writing articles for referees. I'm 56 right and I'm a doing different stuff, writing articles for referee journals without grad students right, isn't where I get my yaya's now, right? I mean, if I had grad students it'd be different, right? Because I have to in some sense, but I also have that be in that conversation ways. There's just other things that excite me that I want to be able to do. I mean, I have to do the first for, you know, accreditation reasons and so on, but, but it's not where I get my excitement from. And that's okay. that, but that's fine difference for a while. I got my excitement from being an associate Dean. Okay. That was fun and a challenge. So I think staying challenged and staying curious. Uh,
1: By the way, I should congratulate you. You recently won the Julian Simon award. Um, and also before that, you also won some other, yeah. award for liberty and advancing economic education, um, overseas. So congratulations on those richly Thank deserved you. awards. Um, the Julian Simon award seemed to be one that you particularly cherished. Could you talk a little bit about it, your experience in getting it and, 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 and whatnot?
2: Well, uh, so the story's got, kind of, the story's kind of funny. Kent, Kent Lassman, the head of CEI, who's just awesome, by the way. Hi, Kent. Uh, Kent, uh, sent me an email and said, that's back in like February, and said, so do you have a few minutes to talk this week? There's something I'd like to talk over with you. And I'm thinking, see, are they working on it? Because I knew like Ian Murray and other people were working on this stuff on Standard of Living. Maybe there's a paper he wants me to read. I'm thinking, what the hell is this? So I kind of ignored it for like a day, right? I'm like, okay, I'll call him back. He said, call me later in the week. Right, I'll call you later in the week. I ignored it for a day. I come home one day and Sarah says to me, did Kent Lassman get a hold of you? I'm like, what? And she says, well, he called me trying to get a hold of you. And he was worried maybe you were in the hospital or something. Cause you didn't return his call. I'm like, he said, call later in the week. But, uh, you know, so, so I called him sitting right where I'm sitting right now. I called him the next day and he told me, and uh, I, uh, you know, I'm going to do it now, but uh, I got off the phone and I just, I lost it. Right. And that, uh, Congratulations, thank you. Yeah. That, that word means a lot to me because of, uh, uh what Julian wrote about you know you 're asking me about why i 'm a joyful joyful warrior, and I want to come back to that whole set of questions i don 't want to forget that but but part of it is that was Julian, right? The guy was a happy warrior, which is ironic because he suffered from depression his whole life and there 's a great video that you can find on YouTube of him speaking i think it, it's a cato i think in the auditorium and he's wearing a pair of devil horns on the top yeah. of his head it's like yes we should we should all have that much fun with with what we're doing and so julian you know and and then when you look at the substance of what julian had to say from this sort of vision of humans as the as the ultimate resource and of progress and the upward march of humanity and, and all that stuff that that has been you know for me that going back to where we were talking about the family book and how that is in the family book in certain sorts of ways. But that to me now is, that's where my, my part of where my intellectual curiosity is, is, is sort of pushing that out. And, and the other part about the Simon award, you know, I looked at that list of previous winners. (laughs) You, you know, me, I'm not shy about my own ego and about, you know, my own, my own self-evaluation is, I never underestimate myself. Uh, but I looked at that list of previous award winners. I'm like, whoa, wait a second now. Um, you know, Vern, my friends, Vernon and Deidre, uh, even Pierre, whose work I think is, Deidre Rocher's, I think is amazing. And, and, and then people like Lomborg and, and, and all this. And then I looked down, and then they, gave, they didn't give the Simon Award winner because they gave a special, like, super-duper Simon Award to Norman Borlaug. I'm going, thinking to myself, how did I get on the same freaking list as this guy, this guy's responsible for billions of people living, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, what the hell did I do, right? And so that's, to me, that's still the most sort of overwhelming part, uh, part of this is sort of, am I, you know, how did I get to be that guy? Uh, and, and, you know, maybe I am, but, but, but you know, maybe this helps persuade me that I am, uh, but, but it's still, I still can't, that's a, like a giant thing to swallow that I can't, that I can't quite yet swallow. Uh, so that that you know, the the Greek award and, and my friends over there gave us, we had the time of our lives. We were over there for a week. They treated us like royalty. It was it was incredible. Uh, and, and I treasure that award because it's that award was a kind of economic communication award right. and that's really important to me.
1: I, I'm as you know, I'm not very good at pithiness. Right. You know, one of the things when we first started doing coordination. Yeah. And,
2: and, and by the way, every pithy thing you've ever said, you stole from me. Yeah, That's yeah. the other well, part. i steal it's one good. from
1: Matt Ridley and ask you to comment on it now. Yeah. But I remember when uh, I started Coordination Problem, I wrote to Tyler and I said, hey, you know, I don't really understand this medium because I basically am writing like short journal articles with footnotes and everything and, you know, whatever. And, and he writes back and he says, just in typical Tyler terms, he goes, there's returns to pithiness. And I wrote back and I said, I don't understand. And he wrote back, I know. (laughs) That was a great line. But uh, recently Matt Ridley has this phrase, which relates to the kind of Simon S kind of position, which is innovation is the child of freedom and the parent of prosperity. Yeah. Comment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so read it one more time. It's the-, it's the, it's the, uh, the
1: Innovation it's the, is the child, child of, of freedom.
2: freedom. Yeah. And the That's right. parent of prosperity. That's right. And, and so wh- it, I love the word innovation because I think that word is important. And I want to just, when I teach this stuff, like in comparative or American economic history, I want to distinguish innovation from invention. Right. There's lots of inventions, but innovations are the parent of pro- prosperity. That's exactly right. Which is the innovations are the inventions that make us better off. And how do you turn how do you how do you turn inventions into innovations? And better yet, a very Beckyan question: How do you know which inventions <laughs> will make good innovations? Yeah. That's where the freedom piece comes in, and that's where you need markets. You need the institutions of the marketplace, and frankly, liberalism more broadly. To, to to give people the freedom to experiment, I love the idea of permissionless innovation. I would say invention because you don't know, right? It's the permission is about the invention. It's the market that makes it an innovation. Uh, okay. But but the idea is the same idea uh, that and and Deidre's market tested betterment and whatever she's calling it these okay. days, right? I mean all of this stuff, right, is a, is about the same thing, and it's all Simonesque. It's all very much in it's that all room. roots in Simon's no, and Simon and the, yeah. And so I don't know if you saw it, but I, I see I posted a uh about a 2000 word piece for me when they when we did the award ceremony thing online and i I did two things in there one i i criticized two of my heroes in there julian and then hans rosling (laughs) right and i which it was criticizing rosling was kind of fun because by the way if he was still alive he deserves that award too uh i can link him a whole list but anyway uh uh, and I said about Julian, I said, Julian didn't emphasize enough sometimes the importance of liberal institutions. It was too easy to walk away from Julian sometime saying, oh, population growth is good. Well, if the institutions are right, it's good. Right. If it's not, it's a nightmare, right? So, so that point and the point that we were just talking about, right, which is, yeah, ultimate resource, but if you're not free to deploy it and don't have a feedback mechanism to know if you deployed it well, right, that second point, by the way, is also somewhat underplayed in Simon. Yeah. Um, and my criticism, Rosling, by the way, is in the washing machine video, which you know I adore and I show like in every class, it's just brilliant. You know, at the end, right? At one point he says, if you give, uh, if you give people democracy, they'll vote f- for washing machines now washing machines don't come from democracy hans right Right. uh and and you don't vote for them not in the way you mean right and and in the and then at the very end it's the end is great where he says thank you industrialization thank you processing plants right and but he doesn't say thank you markets because you can have all the technology in the world but unless you've got a way to turn those inventions into innovations you don't get books out of the washing machine without the market And, and and Rosling, because he and he's not a classical liberal, right? He's awesome, but he's not a classical liberal. That's the missing piece. It's mean, and let's it's also in the video
1: on the you know two hundred two
2: hundred years, and for for right. Yeah. And let's go back to Lavoie for a second, right? Because one of the things about Don is, and I think I said this in my eulogy of Don, which is, and we both have this, and I think, and our Don students certainly do, or well, the rest of them do, which is Don never attributed ill will or bad faith to his intellectual opponents in fact he might have gone too far the other way sometimes yeah, but 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 the point was it was it's like don was don's mental space was look if i could only talk with them if i could only sit down and have a conversation with them we'd find some way to to, to get yeah. someplace right and i think you and i and don students shared that mentality and that's like like i'm sitting here telling you this story i'm thinking damn it i wish i had an hour with Rosling. I just want an hour with him, right? Where we can talk about this. And, 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 you know, I, will I persuade him? I might. Right. But I might not, but okay. I'd learn something, but but that's it. It's, I don't want to beat him over the head I don't want to call him back. I want an hour with him to talk to him.
1: I'm laughing because um, my colleagues had to defend me from this, which was, so I got sent the page proofs of the McLean book, as you know, Yeah, and I was supposed to write a a big thing for the Wall Street Journal or whatever for him, and then I wrote a forty page review, (laughs) right? And so that's not going to go. There's value.
2: There's value in pithiness.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that I'm like the poster child of everything that you know. But before all the McLean stuff started to hit. My original reaction was, I need to send her an email right. and say, hey, hey you know, you- can we sit and talk about You're this? Right. Because I think, you know, like this, and everyone's like, the book's about ready to go to press. Oprah's making it a summer book of the, war- the year award. She's not going to want to listen to you. That's not the purpose of what she's doing. I'm like, no one would just write a book to be able to like, <laughs> right. not but have a conversation with the right. people we- that they want to debate with. And it's- that's from
2: the voice. That's right, it me. is. We're, we're not hopelessly naive.
1: Because my undergraduate teacher, I went to Grove City College and I love it every single day, but my undergraduate teacher yeah. um, who inspired me so much, but he, like a lot of people within the Austrian circle, would have attribute, you know, the fact that uh, the opponents are out to undermine you on purpose. And right. this they're is, not yeah. there to have a a uh, honest conversation. They're there to try to trip you up, so don't trust them.
2: Yeah, and I had, a, I had an undergraduate role model who was much more like Don, and that was another Don, the two Don Dons Her- of my life, Don Herzog, okay. right? Who, yeah. who disagreed with, you know, who I, yeah. now I can say who disagreed with me back then. I to show was, like, you how much
1: him. Don would bend over backwards, uh, in my dissertation, as you know, which was on the Soviet thing, there's two things that are going on during the period of time that I'm writing in Soviet history. Which is they're actually changing the history. Yeah. So Stalin rewrites the history of the previous, you know, programs of the of the uh, central of the of the you know uh, uh, you know uh, party right. you know politics, and people who were studying it on the outside were rewriting the history to fit with either Stalin or not, depending on where they're at. And so I came across some uh, very obvious. Sketchiness on the part of people like Maurice Dobb and some other people right. like that. And I said, Don, what am I supposed to do when I'm wrestling with these ideas and they're shifting around on all these things like that? And he said to me, he said, without even blinking on, he says, you pick the one that's most charitable to their position and the one that's hardest for you to argue right. against. And he Ste- goes, well,
2: Go back. We call, and that. Right. What we're called, what we today we call steel manning, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: And so Don was adamant about doing that and then no. demanding. So let me, I, I, I understand where you have. Uh, well, we, so I gotta, I,
2: we got 15 minutes or so. Or let me 20, ask yeah. you. Um, Just don't forget to ask me your bonus question.
1: I'm going I'm to ask you the last two questions, I okay. guess. Well, let me ask you the three. So first, um, if you could go back in time and visit with professors in the early 1980s when you were in graduate school. Knowing what you know now, and put Lavoie off the table, but any of
0: them—say
1: Buchanan was there, Tullock was there, Bolding was there, Karen Vaughn was there, Victor Vanberg, Tullison even, or whatever—any of them, what would you ask today that you didn't get a chance to ask then?
2: Uh, I don't know. That's that's I. I when I read that question, I was thinking I'm still. I I'm not sure what I would what I would go back and, and, and ask them, ask them today. I, you know, uh, I may, maybe to go back to something I said earlier, what, how how did you keep reinventing yourself in a way that kept you focused on the scientific conversation? And I I think I know the answer. I think the answer is grad students. I think they keep you intellectually young. You, You have to right? I think if you have PhD students, you, 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 you can't work with them unless you're at the edge of whatever's happening and, and therefore wanting to make those contributions. And it is, you know, I'm going to detour from your question for a second. I, uh, I've never had PhD students, oh, well, only by adoption, the, the, the times that I've been to Mercatus and worked with those guys and some great ones, and, and I'm working with a great one right now, uh, and, I, and I'm grateful for that opportunity that you and Mercatus had given me, um, and so, I, so I've never had that. I don't have it at Ball State. Uh, and I love working with undergraduates. And that's clearly my comparative advantage. And that's, that's fine. But, but, it, but the cost of that, I think, is just what we're talking about, uh, is how do you stay engaged in the discipline? Uh, one of the interesting things about the move to Ball State was it has forced me to be more so because my colleagues are... I have more research-oriented colleagues than I did in St. Yeah, Louis, yeah. and, and, and that's been good. And I have a, I do have an article under review at the Journal of Economic History right now. I co-authored one. We'll see what happens. That thing's got to get published somewhere. It's too good. Um, but it's just, that's, you know, keep keeping, how do you keep up with that? And I, I think that's the question I would have asked. We were,
1: because- we were fortunate. I mean, you did have someone like Bolding, for example, who was like, what you said before is challenged and curious. Yeah. And he just
2: always seemed, and also urgency
1: of it all. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Right. And, and I was just telling someone, maybe it was, was it Sarah? I was telling this. I know we were talking about this. I got to tell this story. It's kind of not the urgency made me think of it. The other little role model for me is in this way is Kirzner. We, you and I sat at fee for a decade or so and watched him walk in every year. And deliver essentially the same lecture, that's that introductory lecture, essentially the same lecture every year. Except it was never the same twice. Right. It was always a little different. There was a new analogy, there was a new this, there was a new that. And and you could just see him going back afterwards, going, you know what? I didn't get that as well. I it wasn't right, it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. I can be, there's a better Kirzner I can be, right? This is right. right? There's a better Kirzner I can be. And at age 80 delivering it like it was the most important damn thing in the world. Right. And he's given that talk of 50 gazillion times. I'm like, damn it.
1: When I worked with him at NYU, yes. he, he had a, he had a, a, you know, he would be in his office and he taught a course for undergraduates. Yeah. And he had a sign that went up on the wall and it said, if you, if this door is closed and you hear professor Kersner inside, do not knock. He doesn't want to be disturbed. And he would put that up an hour before every time he went to go lecture and it was amazing because he would, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, be so dedicated to a course he'd been teaching for 20 years, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I actually, you, it's interesting that you mentioned what you said, because when I was a youngster, I had the opportunity to meet Robert Nozick. And I asked Nozick how you keep yourself fresh. He says, never teach the same class twice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. But, but go back to my discussion earlier. I think if you teach the same class multiple times, uh, you end up using it as a way to stimulate a kind of deeper engagement. I think Nozick, if Nozick was teaching grad students, right, that makes more, I, more sense. Yeah. Uh, right. But I,
1: it's, it's, I think that's how Buchanan did it. Yeah, Wagner yeah. does it. They yeah. teach – their papers. But anyway, I, yeah. I, 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 uh, I do think there's also, you're, you're onto something because I think you can look and study, uh, certain colleagues who, when they are brought into an environment where there all of a sudden is a bunch of students around all of a sudden their productivity goes up too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's not because the students are running regressions. It's because the interaction of the ideas. Right. Like
2: right. That. right. That's why, I mean, you know, if I think back to our time as grad students, right. I mean, you know, we, we were like, uh, uh, here, let me, t- I'll tell it as a kind of different story. Uh, I had a running joke with my friend Kathy when we used to teach together. You know, we, we would go through something in class, whatever, and we'd, after class, we'd, we'd sit down and start sort of decompressing and talking about it. And she'd start laughing because, like, um, not every day, but frequently, at some point in that sort of postmortem conversation, I'd say, there's a there's a paper in that. Right? And and that's the way, right? There's a there's a paper in that. You could put that on my tombstone too. But there's a paper in that. And we were like that in grad school, right? We we were well, like
1: taught to be that way too. Yeah. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah. Right. And and sort of getting I know that you've talked about this with with grad students and I have too, which is getting them and and this is in Jason Brennan's stuff too, is getting them out of the mindset of writing papers for class. Right. When you write papers in class, you're writing it potentially for the journals. Everything you write should be, there's a paper in that, let's, let's write it. Even I, I had a conversation, I want to say too much, I had a conversation with a colleague uh, yesterday or the day before in a different discipline who is working, who had an idea for a paper that I think is so good. And I said to her, has anyone done this before? And she said no, and I said, "Have you talked to people in this discipline?" And she said, "Yeah, I talked to so and so and so." And they said, "No, no one's ever done this before." And I and I said to her, "Oh my God, you have to write. You have to get off Zoom with me right now and write this paper, like <laughs> <laughs> before somebody comes steals it or 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 thinks of it, right? Because this is so good. You need to." And that level of excitement, right? I mean, it was I, you know, I was feeling it sort of for her, but but uh, it's like, yeah, that's that's the thing, right? How do you? When you're with other people, you get that, right? When you're in yeah. those conversations with grad students, other I get it with my with my colleagues here too. Yeah, it's
1: fascinating. I mean, and we have you you have been very important part throughout your career of your interactions with Mercatus, both as a research scholar and then also in providing teaching and getting to know some of the graduate students and mentoring them and working right. with them. And
2: I miss. Uh, I miss those workshops Emily and I did. I mean, I understand why, why they're not the right solution now for a variety of reasons. And I couldn't be happier that Emily's in the job she's in. But, but yeah, I miss that. I love that stuff. I miss it.
1: So I, I wanted to end by asking you two questions. Uh, and just the, uh, my question will be very, which is just, if you could, um, you wrote your dissertation with Don. Uh, we as students of Don tend to, you know, emphasized Don. Uh, We had, you know, very good professors across the board at the time. But, uh, what other professors at Mason besides Don or what aspects of Don have you continued on or what other people have influenced you greatly?
2: Well, well, I think we've talked about the ways in which, you know, Don lives in in all of us, right? Uh, And, and the, I would say just about Don, the kind of it's the six-tool player thing, right? <laughs> the, 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 I notice I snuck that sixth in there. That's yeah, the administrative yeah. stuff. Um, but, but sort of the, the kind of variety of things and, and working in the liberal arts college and, and sort of my, my desire to communicate with the left and all those things are, are all Don. That's Don living in me in ways. In ways, frankly, I didn't really think about too consciously until Don got sick. Yeah. Uh, but I want to talk about someone else. Uh, you know, and we're both, but you know I'm a big Karen Vaughn fan. Right. And I think that Karen's role in all of this history we're talking, this early history we're talking about, still, still is not appreciated. Right. I mean, Karen was, had that fifth tool, right? She was an institution builder. She was, a, an, she was an entrepreneur in those ways. Uh, she had the connections in the discipline. And, and I think a great deal of what that program is there now owes a lot to Karen's work Early on, and I don't think that's appreciated. Karen was also, by the way, and there's all those things. Was a terrific mentor of grad students. Um, you know, if you were doing history of economic thought, right, you had a top flight historian of economic thought at your disposal. But just you know, when she was department chair, when I was a young teacher, right, the ability to walk into Karen's office and talk about teaching stuff and all that. Uh, uh, yeah, and and so I I think, uh, I think
1: about how important it is that a woman was the one carrying well there is at that, that time was carrying the water of that department in this university.
2: Oh, and, and with some of the, her male colleagues who will remain nameless, uh, who were, who didn't always work so well. well and
1: they also created problems externally because of who they are, but yep. she was there to do all that. Yeah. She's amazing. You know, Um, she had an innovation that started with me and then unfortunately ended with you because she stopped being chairman. Was she made us assistant professors our final year in graduate school? And that experience, again, like you said about something earlier or whatever, it was kind of all of a sudden. It was like you got invited in and she said, I would like to make you an assistant professor. And at the time, remember, we think this department's the greatest department in the world. And you're like,
2: really? Like me? Like I, yeah.
1: and then, you know, then she's like, "And you're going to teach 12 hours.
2: Yeah. Well, there was that part. Yeah. I, I, I got to say, I don't know. I look back. I know what the answer is. I look back and I go, I was teaching a freaking four, four load right. with and- new preps and writing a dissertation. How, what, where, how did I do this? And you had a small child, you had a kid, right? Oh, yeah. I'm like, well, one answer I my joke answer is, Well, there were no committee meetings. So that. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right but and and no internet right so that was you know okay that's that's uh, you know i have adult onset internet induced uh, <laughs> attention deficit disorder but that's uh, uh but yeah that's how we did it there was no there was no email, it was, there, was no, pretty
1: amazing yeah, uh, yeah. uh as a as a mentor and also victor vanberg and yeah. others and you know it was an amazing guy.
2: it was an amazing place to be yeah
1: Last question, Steve. It's a bonus question. All right. It is, uh, you know, and you, you just go wherever you want with it, which is you've had a lot of changes and challenges in your life lately, but you're also one of the most optimistic and joyous warriors that I know. What keeps you marching forward and excites your intellectual imagination the most these days?
2: So I'm going to give my, my cute glib answer though. It's also not wrong. Uh, me, uh, I just heard my wife's eyes roll from 10 miles away at at Liberty (laughs) Fund. Uh, Shocking answer, Horowitz. But here's what I mean by that. I'm I'm intellectually fascinated by this. I'm a living science experiment right now. And I'm intellectually fascinated by that. When I was going in for my first stem cell transplant, one of the the doctors on the team was walking us through it. And he paused and he looked at me and said, Said, you're an academic, right? And I said, yeah. I said, you probably find this really intellectually fascinating, don't you? And I said, yes, I do, right? And so, so for me, it's it's bizarre. I think it's bizarre to someone who hasn't gotten not going through it. But it's like it's okay. So let's now let's let's we have to do these things. I I feel great. I'm cancer-free right now. I feel great, right? I'm you know. You're
1: like the, you're like uh, the, the character in uh, The Martian. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, let's solve the problem.
2: Yeah. Right, right. But, uh, but I'm like, so you feel great, feel great right now, and how is that? Well, I, I, the science is fascinating. The medicine's fascinating. I'm on, you know, two stem cell transplants. I'm on these two medications right now that are keeping the cancer at bay. It's amazing. And that's part of the Julian Simon stuff too, right? I mean, Jason Kuznicki from Cato said to me early on, he said, he said, you, he said, the way that treatment of multiple myeloma has progressed he said, you will be living tribute to all the ideas you've been arguing for, for all these years. And I haven't wow. forgotten that, right? So to me, that's, there's a, that fascinating. Also, I, I can't lie, right? So last February, I was in the hospital and, and I, for, for related stuff, and, and I bent over and my heart went tachycardic. I, my heart started, was like 120 per minute or something, right? Really high and wouldn't stop. And it was, tachy, it was the beat was off. So they have to do something about it. Long story short they gave me an infusion that that rebooted my heart basically stopped my heart for a second and started it again right and it didn't work the first time i had to do it a second time which also didn't work and then they gave me a different drug so twice i went through this sarah's petrified right i'm like well now we're going to figure now we're going to know what it feels like if your heart stop and starts again i'm just like i'm fascinated by this i can't i can't explain why i'm not i should have been petrified i kind of was but but i'm just like oh well that's and i'm also fascinated by the social end of this, which is how me, the relationship between patients and doctors, so I, I can't not be a social scientist, right? Um, I'm fascinated by how people deal with you when you have an illness like this. I'm fascinated by, by about how I and others deal with death. I've I'm, I'm just, all of that stuff, uh, I, you know, <laughs> it will surprise no one for me to say that I'm the most fascinating thing in my life right now. Uh, <laughs> Right. But I, but I mean that, I mean, it's, I, in a certain, as, as a, I mean it also as a social scientist, right. It's really, really interesting for me to, and to experience as an economist to experience the sort of medical system from the inside uh, is uh, I have a potential project actually with Mercatus that might deal with this. So we'll yeah. leave that aside, but, so that's one, but the second stuff. The second, what keeps me going is that's why the Simon award was, was so, well timed and important to me. I mean that work and thinking about those issues, uh, and thinking about the long climb humanity's made out of poverty and misery, and 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 war. Uh, to me, is is f- that continues to in, uh, enthrall me, and I want to keep talking about it, and and I want to keep the, the the talk in Greece, in particular. I want to keep talking about this idea of economics as social cooperation, you know, the story that Mises would have titled human action, social, I I wish he would have, we would have had a really different world had he, but I understand why he didn't, but I want to keep talking about that. One of my, weirdly, one of my proudest moments at St. Lawrence was when I persuaded the head of our peace studies program to allow econ 101 to count as an elective in our peace studies program. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's where the, that's where the dialogue should begin right this is hayek dedicating to socialists of all parties he wasn't he meant it he wasn't being sarcastic he meant it right and and so i think for me the the, the you know again if we could only talk the people who who call themselves progressives i want to talk about progress and i want to talk about the sources of progress and i want to talk about what an amazing place we live in and and the the last few years of my life, particularly the illness, has forced me to to confront and appreciate all of that. It's personal now. Before it was just, you know, it was it was a game. Yeah. It was it was it was fun and it was important, but it was still a game. Now it's personal. Uh and you know, every I live in weirdly month to month, right? Next month I go and get more labs and we'll see what that has to say and we'll go from there. Um I don't, you know, who knows what I got left, but but whatever it is. That's that's so. That's the kind of combination of things right now. It's it's dealing how to you know I, I'm I'm fascinating to me, uh, but I'm fascinating to me because it's part of this bigger story about progress and and all these things.
1: Yeah. Well, that's well. First, uh, it's wonderful to see you so healthy and and yeah. you know, strong. Um, and let's keep that going. And, yeah, and that's as the Jason said, let's make sure the scientific innovations continue to to, yeah
2: that's and i will just as as a quick pause that you know the amazing thing is is even even like i was really sick one of the one of the nurses said to me yeah uh i came in looking healthy she goes yeah you weren't looking so good earlier this year you were kind of (laughs) translucent okay that's that's not good uh and, and and i'm feeling so much better and 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 in that even in that nine months or whatever there's at least one, maybe two new drugs that have been approved, right? Every time a new drug gets approved, I have one more, as it were, bullet in the chamber, one more, one more thing to use to fight this thing. And so the longer we, as you say, the longer I keep stretching it out, and there's a cure. There's a cure on the horizon. I don't know if I'll get there, but it's there.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Steve. This has been wonderful to have this My pleasure. With you and uh, to reminisce, but also for the promise of, of all the great things to come. So thank yep. you very much.
2: My pleasure, Pete, as always. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.